to me, you can't divorce your career from your life. And often people do. So make decisions about your career that suit the life that you want. Make decisions about your life that fit with your career. Because when you work with the two hand in hand, then you end up getting to where it is that you want to get to. And so often I see people making decisions where the two seem completely disconnected. And that's a hard thing to do. So I would say, sit down, think about where you're up to now. Where is it that you want to get to? What's the role that your career is going to play with that? Are you in an environment that is bringing out the best in you? If it's not, what can you change? Either in that environment or how you're responding to that environment. And, you know, does it mean you can go somewhere else? Because what you really want to do is be able to look back at all of this and go, yeah, I've worked hard. That working hard has paid off. And yeah, there's been times that have been hard because it's always going to be times that have been hard, but I've actually grown through it and I'm really happy where I've landed. There's a fabulous researcher called Tasha Ehrlich, and she talks about self-awareness from two levels. You need to understand yourself, you know, understand how you're triggered, but you also need to understand the impact that you have on others. And sometimes when people see themselves as self-aware, they go, oh, I really understand myself, but they're not aware of the impact that their behavior is having on the people around them. And, you know, I do come from a philosophy that I think it's very rare that someone wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, my goal today is to be a totally shit boss. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests every minute of every day we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. Thanks for listening. And now let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Now, over the years, I've talked a lot about living by design in order to enjoy your ideal lifestyle. And getting invested in yourself and living with intent to make it happen instead of letting life happen to you. And nowhere is this more prevalent than in our work, where we spend most of our waking hours and years of our active lives. This is where we spend most of our time working for a boss or being the boss. But how many of you really enjoy your work and are truly fulfilled? When you wake up in the morning at the start of another week, do you leap out of bed and do the Toyota jump at the prospect of a great Monday? Or do you groan, roll over, hit the snooze button, pull the pillow over your head and wish it was Saturday? Chances are that your feelings about your work are greatly affected by your boss. Or if you're the boss, how you handle a mantle of leadership and responsibility greatly affects you and those around you. Because let's face it, we've all worked for one, been one, or are one. You know, the bad boss even if we don't like to admit it. We've all experienced bad bosses that are disorganized or dysfunctional or they just can't control their temper. 
They steal your ideas and rarely, if ever, acknowledge or appreciate your efforts. Worse still are the bullies who intimidate you and generally make your life a living, working hell. From Gordon Gecko and Wall Street to Mrs. Burns and the Simpsons, a bad boss story makes for good drama and even great comedy, but in real life, it's no fun at all. It can be downright miserable. Because a bad boss makes you dread going to work, impacts your self-esteem, and over time, affects your mental health. And let me confess, I was once one of those horrible pain-in-the-butt bosses. Back when I was an ambitious perfectionist architect running a busy practice and complex projects about 30 years ago, I really made life hard for myself and everyone around me, and I didn't even realize it. I was relentless on expectations and workload, and I kept my team members at a distance. I didn't have enough time for them, nor did I try to get to know them. When I was promoted into a director's role, and I'd be stretching the truth to call myself a leader back then, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I loved the idea of being someone others looked to for direction, but I simply wasn't equipped with the leadership skills to actually be that someone. I made it up as I went along, and I had a few hits, but many more misses. Now, like most people, I didn't deliberately set out to be a bad boss. I just didn't know any better. And my perfectionism and single-minded ambition were an absolutely toxic combination. I didn't want to admit to my bosses that I couldn't do something or to deliver substandard work. So there was always pressure to perform and I set a cracking pace. So when the pressure of work environment got to me, I passed it down the line. So the pressure on my team increased as well. As a result, my team and I were absolutely constantly exhausted. But sadly, I was blind to this impact and I ended up burnt out, broken and broke. And at the tender age of 33, I ended up losing my marriage, my son, my career, and my self-worth. I threw out the baby with the bathwater, gave up architecture, and started a new career. Now, thankfully, with a lot of self-work, counselling, and reflection, I started to improve. It didn't happen overnight, and it's taken years to become a better boss, and it's still very much a work in progress. It started with an awareness of the impact I was having and a desire to do better, then surrounding myself with people who could help me to see myself more clearly. And my wife and partner in all things, Sonia, has been my rock and my mirror in this regard. So what about you? Are you loving your life at work? Do you work for a good or bad boss? Or are you a bad boss yourself and are so buried in the urgent rather than the important that you don't even know it? Do you have worries on multiple fronts like your job security, performance, outcomes and reputation? Do you have fears and frustrations about your relationships? Because the reality is that we all report to someone and we all face challenges. And with recent role models like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson and Putin, it's obvious that the world is in desperate need of good leaders because clearly there aren't many. I'm talking about leaders who will challenge standard top-down authoritarian practices and organisations. Leaders who are willing to get invested in tackling the big issues we face as humans and leaders who want to bring out the best in their team because they know that when their team members thrive, everyone benefits. And at the same time, the world needs happy, healthy, and engaged workers who bring their whole and best selves to work every day. Workers who do their best and are at their best. To capture all of this, it's obvious that to live more fulfilled lives, we need to get invested in better bosses. So to help us deep dive into this much needed but little understood subject, we're joined by the author, a bad boss, what to do if you work for one, manage one, or are one. 
I'm talking about Michelle Gibbings, who's bringing back the happy to workplace culture. Michelle is the author of three books. She's a global keynote speaker, and she's on a mission to help leaders, teams, and organizations create successful workplaces where everyone thrives and progress is accelerated. So welcome, and let's get invested, Michelle. Sounds good. I'm ready. <laughs> now, I, I'll be honest straight up. I plagiarized uh, some of that intro straight from your book because it, it was so inspiring and so sort of nailed exactly how I felt in times gone by that I thought it was a, a great way to kick it off. But uh, Michelle, to, to get things underway, can I sort of get you to give us a quick rundown on what you do, what you do differently, and and most importantly, why you do what you do? I think I'll start with the why. And part of it is is my history. So I spent many, many years in corporate and I had the privilege of working in some amazing organizations, some great teams with some awesome leaders. I also had the flip side. I had times when things were very, very challenging and some not so good leaders that I was working with as well. And what I find is that if you can work with people, if you can understand their context and understand their environment and equip them with the skills so that they can be their best and then bring out the best in the people around them, that's when you get great things happening. And so for me, in terms of the why, I really want to help create healthy, happy, thriving workplaces. But that starts at an individual level. And so the work that I do is both at an individual level where I work one-on-one and I do executive coaching and mentoring work. I do facilitation work where I work with teams. And then I work at an organizational level where there are programs that run across organizations. And because my background is corporate, I'm not only bringing the knowledge and insights that I've got from all of the study and research that I've done. So I've got that theoretical background, but I've also got the practical experience. And to me, that's one of the differentiating factors in terms of what I do and how I work is I'm not just talking theory because I've been there. I understand the complexities of how big organizations work, the complexities of organizational dynamics and politics. I'm coming from real life practical experience. And that's really powerful because I can put myself in the shoes of the people who are going through the situations and understand where they're coming from. And often that's what my clients will say to me. They'll go, wow, how have you just done that? I don't know how you've just managed to sum up my entire working environment in a couple of sentences and you haven't worked here before. Yeah, love it. Love it. Well, we're going to dig into some of that uh, shortly as we sort of go back through your journey. But before we do that, I'd love for you to share something unique or interesting about the, about yourself that you've never shared publicly before. That's a really hard question because I feel like I talk a lot and I think I'm a pretty, <laughs> I think I'm a pretty open person. Uh, um, I probably should have should have got my husband involved in this and he would be very happy to probably share something that I haven't shared before. Look, I think for me, the, the key thing is I am who I am. And often that's what people will say when they meet me is they'll go, oh, wow, Michelle, you know, I've listened to you on a podcast before, or I've you know seen you on TV or I've read one of your books. And it always amazes, you know, you're just exactly, I when I hear you speak, it's how I read you when I read your book. So I do think I'm a pretty open book. I don't think I... Um, yeah, I am who I am and what you get is who I am, if that makes sense. It's not as though there's an artifice or an artificiality around I'm a different person in my personal and professional life. I've managed to be able to bridge both of those worlds together. 
Yeah, I love it. Okay, well, let, let's let's sort of uh, dig into uh, your background in a bit of detail. Then, uh, given you know the the obvious impact that your uh, practical hands-on experience has in in helping others, uh, so I'd like you to sort of give us a bit of a readers readers digest summary of you know what you've invested your time, energy, money in over the years, and why, and how has this led you to where you are today. I'm an absolute lover of learning and everything at every step through schooling years and through my university. And then once I started working in the corporate environment, I never stopped learning and I never waited for the organization to invest in me. I was always willing to spend my own money and my own time investing in things that I thought were useful or interesting. And so I've got a very broad background and also a broad range of interests and knowledge because I have this insatiable appetite to learn. And so with that was the then the ability to be able to jump not just industries, but functional roles. So, you know, I originally started in government and in politics. I then went to work in the mining sector, then financial services before I started my own business. And through those uh, careers, I went from everything from being a company spokesperson and working in public policy to being a head of compliance, doing strategy, running large-scale change programs. And so there's always been a lot of diversity in my work, and that's what's kept me really interested. But all of that's been underpinned by learning. Yeah, okay. Can you talk us through some of the highs and lows uh, that you've personally experienced and the learnings that you've taken away from those then over the journey so far? Lots of highs, lots of lows. Um, wow, it's always almost hard in terms of knowing where to start. You know, if I look back, I think probably at a quite a young age, because this is my first, you know, real role out of the university. And I was working for a member of parliament and she lost her seat in an election. And I remember um, sitting in the office crying because, you know, she'd lost her seat. I'd lost my job and not knowing what to do and thinking, wow, all this energy and effort that I've expended over the last couple of years feels like it's come to nothing. And it was a great learning that, yes, invest time in work, but you also need to make sure that you've got that other side of life. Because if you don't have that personal life and a really strong sense of family connection and friends, work can come to an end and work's not going to necessarily take care of you. You know, when the job's done, the job is done. And I've certainly seen that through my career in terms of how people can be exited from organizations quite quickly. Um, I think I've been very fortunate through my career in that I've had some great mentors and people in my network who have been able to help guide me and introduce me to different sectors. So even when I left politics, it was a family friend who suggested, have you thought about the mining sector? And I would never have naturally thought about going into the mining sector. And I hadn't realized how transferable my skills were at that time. Um, I also have been, you know, throughout that career, you know, when I jumped then from the mining sector and I spent time working in small mining towns and, you know, there's a huge amount of experience that comes with that. And I often say to people, don't be scared of doing things that are different. Uh, if you, through my career, I would take leaps into the unknown. And that meant not just you know, moving geographic locations, but moving industries and moving professions. But it was in those leaps that I learned a huge amount about myself, what I was capable of, and also that recognition of how much of your skills are transferable. And 
you know, if I look at myself when I was leaving university, if someone had said, Michelle, map out your career, I would never have been able to map this out. And I often say to people early in their career, you know, we're often talked, you know, told to look at the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. I think that's very hard to do when you are quite early in your career because you don't know what the opportunities are that are going to come to you or be in front of you. So just be open to what's coming next and then work hard because when you see the opportunity and you work hard, that next big opportunity comes yeah, absolutely. Well, given the sort of uh, the theme of our chat today, if you look back on your working history uh, prior to working for yourself, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the good bosses and the bad bosses uh, and, and the learnings you took from them? The boss who sticks out in my mind was the one who really challenged my notion of what it meant to lead. And I was still quite early in my management career at that time. And, you know, I I deliberately use the term management, not leadership, because I certainly wasn't a leader at that point. And she said to me, you know, Michelle, I get you're ambitious and I get you want to do a good job. That's great. But no one's going to really remember the work, the output Because when you leave, someone's going to come into this role, they'll do it differently. They may even do it better than you. The bit that's going to stick with your team, and in some respects, she was channeling the words of Maya Angelou in this regard. She said, the bit that's going to stick is how you make them feel. Are you helping them get to places in their career that they can't get to, but for the fact that they've worked with you? And it was a real wake-up call for me because I sat back and went, wow, I had realized that I was spending far more time on the task and less on the people. And so I flipped it. And I found that the more I invested my energy doing one-on-ones, really understanding my team, not at a, just at a team level, but at an individual level, who were they? What motivated them? Where were their hopes and fears and dreams as it came to their career? And how could I help them navigate that? The more I invested in that knowledge and those insights and really helped them, the work just got done. It also built loyalty because if they know that you've got their back, if they know that you're really there for them, they'll, they will help you. When you're, you know, struggling under pressure, they're there for you. They're going to stay back. They're going to do the work. And so for me, from a learning perspective, um, this person, you know, I haven't worked with her for probably 15 years and we're still um, connected. I still talk to her at least once a year. Yeah, I love it. Well, you've touched on mentors a couple of times. I'd, I'd love for you to uh, talk talk to us about how important mentors have been to your success and how they helped you in, in relation to what you're doing now. Look, they're critical. And I distinguish between a mentor and a coach. So through my corporate career, I had a coach and a coach is fantastic because, you know, they're there for you. They can challenge you, but they haven't necessarily been where you've been. And so they can help you generate your own insights and that sense of self-awareness. But a mentor is really someone who's been where you've been. They will provide guidance to you. You can uh, share ideas with them. They'll give you their perspective. Um, and you know, at various stages in my career, I've had mentors and I would ha- have had mentors who 
didn't necessarily know that I saw them as a mentor um, because for me, it was about having people around me who knew more than me, who yep. could share ideas and insights. Um, and even when I was starting the business and it was a very random kind of construct that I actually even ended up running a business. And we can talk about that if that's of interest at some stage. Um, but for me, you know, my financial planner very early in the piece um, when I was left corporate to set up the business, he was instrumental and he became a mentor in a different way to what a financial planner would probably normal, normally play because he was giving me ideas about the business and about things that I hadn't thought about that really helped set me up mentally for what I was about to embark on. Yeah, love it. It's, it's really sort of testing you in areas that you wouldn't be capable of thinking about yourself. Now, as a very slight aside, uh, while we're on the subject of mentors, uh, if you're listening and you want to ensure that you're optimizing your investment approach, either as a first-time investor or as an existing investor who's struggling to make it work, feel free to join me on a bushy blockbuster for an hour of power to talk with me personally on any questions, queries, or issues that you'd like to discuss. And so you just Click on the link in the show notes or jump on knowhowproperty.com.au, hit the purple book appointment button, and then click on the pathway finder option and our team will be in touch to book you in for a preferred time for just 295 bucks. You can ask me anything you want on property finance or investment strategy for a full 60 minutes. Now, sort of getting back on track, uh, Michelle, uh, I'd love for you to, to talk to us about how you would define sustain sustainable success. What does it mean to you? It's such a personal definition. And for me, I love the fact that you've put sustainability in front because you can have short-term success and blow yourself up in the run um, because you work too hard or you destroy relationships in the process. And for me, sustainable success is very much about, it is life by design. It's being very deliberate about the choices that I make. And one of my keywords is freedom. I need the freedom to choose. I need the freedom to be me. I need the freedom to be able to say yes or to say no to things. And part of having sustainable success means I have that freedom. The and you know that does that means I've you know I feel like there's been a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of very deliberate decision-making that has enabled me to get there. Um, but I think, you know, it's really important for people to define what success means for them because it's so personal. And some people, I think you could, it's very easy to get caught up in that sort of rat race of, oh, well, I've got to have the biggest this or the biggest that. And, you know, the one thing I often, Craig and I, um, who's my husband, we often talk about when we're trying to make a decision and I'll say to him, if we do this, will it overly complicate our lives? And if the answer to that is yes, then we don't do it. I don't want a complicated life. Um, and I see a lot of people who go for things and their life then becomes really complex and therefore stressful. And I think if that's what you want, go for it. And I really hope you're happy. But is that is so not me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right with you there, Michelle. Having uh, pursued the stressful exercise many years ago, I avoid it like the play. But you've touched on a couple of things there, and, and you're probably living this already. But I'd love for you to paint us a, a as vivid a picture as you can of what your ideal lifestyle looks like and, and what your life vision is as you see it at this point in time. 
I often think I am so blessed and I worry sometimes when I use that word because I know sometimes people hate the word blessed, but I do. I really do think I'm blessed for where I am. I was fortunate. I think, you know, they often talk about, you know, luck in life. And there is no doubt that the biggest lottery card in life is the family that you are born into. I was born into a family where, um, you know, my father came from nothing and my mother's family was probably a little bit more established than my dad, but my dad is super, super, super smart. And he taught me a lot of life lessons around, you know, save more than you spend, work hard, you know, all of those sort of those very sort of strong ethics about the choices that you're making in life. And I feel like all of that gave me a really good grounding then for the decisions that I've made later in life. And so this life by design, it is very deliberate around I love what I do. And when I made the choice to leave corporate, it was a big decision. Um, But at the same time, when I say it was a big decision, it was a really easy decision. And I still remember because I I was at a meditation retreat and I'd been in an environment that was very toxic. It was a very hard environment. I didn't enjoy it. It didn't bring out the best in me. And I had orchestrated an exit. It was a bit messy. I was very worried about reputational damage when this was all going down. And I was at a meditation retreat and I came home from the meditation retreat and I said to Craig, I'm done. And Craig goes, uh, done with what? And I said, done with corporate. And he goes, excellent. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to open a business. And he goes, in what? I said, I've got no idea. Um, and that is literally how I started. I had, I just knew, I knew my career drivers. I love learning. I love being challenged. That would never change. But I didn't need that security piece that had often been a big driver for me, what I now needed was autonomy. And the only way I could get autonomy was to work for myself. And so when I left corporate eight years ago to do what I'm doing now, I saw what I'm doing now is this is what I will do until I stop working because I've got the ability to flex it up and flex it down. You know, at the moment I'm doing a PhD, you know, a lot of people can look at me and go, you've got to be kidding. Like, why would you do a PhD? You've got three books. Do you really need a PhD? But I've always wanted to do this. Um, you know, I've my, my husband squarely puts me in that kind of nerd category. Um, he does that with love, but he always goes, how did I end up with you? Like, seriously. Um, but for me, having that ability to be able to learn and travel, and I look at the things that I get to do with work now, you know, I've been overseas to different parts of the world with work which I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd stayed in corporate. I've got flexibility, you know, at the, you know, as my parents are getting older, I've got the flexibility to be able to spend more time in Brisbane um, with them. They're just that, you know, I'm not beholden to anyone else apart from the choice of really how much I want to grow the business and how quickly and what the shape and nature of that looks like. And that's, you know, conversations that Craig and I have all the time alongside the conversations that we have around investments and where we're going and what's his work doing. So we very regularly have conversations around what next, what do we need to do? Are we on track? Are we off track? Love it. Love it. Now you've touched on some, some key elements there that, you know, freedom, autonomy, flexibility, uh, what's been your investment strategy in terms of, you know, attaining and maintaining uh, this so far and and where that will continue to go then, Michelle? 
Uh, very basic, save more than you spend. Be very clear what is an asset and a growing asset versus what uh, can sometimes people think are assets but are actually liabilities, a la often expensive cars. Um, and don't worry about what anyone else is doing. And, you know, I used to see it all the time when I was working in corporate, this sense of having to keep up with people. And I often found, I think people couldn't quite figure me out because, you know, when I was working in corporate, all my contemporaries were driving Mercedes and BMW, and I was driving a little Mitsubishi Lancer and people just looked at me and you could see them thinking, <laughs> she's on a really good wicket and what is she doing? And I'd be going, I don't need a big car. I don't need it. I just, it's not something that interests me. And so we've, always Craig and I you know I you know I got married later in life as well and so early in my career as a single female I was very intent on making sure that I was going to be financially secure and that was always the key thing even then when Craig came along I'm not going to rely on someone else to manage my finances for me and also not rely on someone else to make those financial decisions what's lovely now with Craig and I together and we've now been together for um, 18 years is that we complement each other in how we make financial decisions and we make joint decisions and we're very clear about the strategy that we've got together. But I also think, you know, I often see, you know, sometimes younger women making decisions where they go, oh, well, I'll worry about that once I get married. And I think, but you've got no guarantee that you will get married. So why wait until later? Make those decisions now. Have your own financial independence because that then means you're coming into a relationship as an equal, not as someone who is reliant on someone else to fund their lifestyle. Totally agree. A, a man is not a plan. I 100% I agree with you there, Michelle. Um, given my own sort of focus on property and, and how properties benefit myself and my good wife, Sonia, uh, what part of any has property played in your journey so far? Lots. I still remember when I got my bought my first property when I was 23, I think it was. I still remember this because I just got a really big pay rise and, you know, this was many, many years ago. I think this would have been, well, I'm about to release my age to you, Bushy, but this would have been 29 years ago. And I still remember going home because I was back in Brisbane at that time. So I was um, temporarily staying back with mum and dad. And I said to dad, I've got a choice, buy a bigger wardrobe or maybe I should buy a unit. And dad goes, I think you need to go and buy a unit. And look, I, and once again, you know, I was very lucky because I had parents who, um, understood the property market. And so I had people who could guide me through that process. And, you know, property prices are very different now to what they were, you know, when I was first buying. So I think I'm very conscious of that in terms of, you know, giving advice to other people. But yeah. property is very important. But I also think it's, um, you know, the first place I bought, I didn't have everything I wanted in it, but that was okay. It was a stepping stone. And I still remember this, um, you know, I, I had the unit, I had two deck chairs. I had a black and white TV. I had a fridge that mum and dad had had lent me and I had a bed and that was it. There was no other furniture in the unit. And I still remember going to work and telling someone and they said, well, why wouldn't you just get a bigger loan so that you could get all this new furniture? And I said, because the furniture is not, not really an asset. I said, the furniture that I'd be buying at that point, I would rather acquire really good pieces that I want. And I don't want to use debt to buy furniture. And it was, once again, that came from my dad, use 
you know, the difference between good debt and bad debt. And so it was interesting because for me, once again, there were lots of people around me who were saying, oh, you just don't worry about it. You've already taken out a loan, just add more. But I didn't need more. And so being very clear around what's the difference between a need and a want. Love it. Love it. Some really good uh... Uh, principles there and, and clearly your folks have really instilled some really strong uh, parameters there that have, have helped you along the road. Uh, I'd love for you to share what you consider to be uh, both your best and your worst investments so far and I'm not just talking about physical assets here Michelle, I'm talking about wherever you've invested your time, energy and money. Uh, can you sort of think back on the best and the worst and and most importantly of course what you've learned from them? Um, the worst was probably taking advice from a financial planner. I probably shouldn't say this. Um, <laughs> and he told us to put money in a fund that really didn't do well from a superannuation perspective. So we then just made the decision, pulled it out and put it somewhere else, which was a very good decision. So it was a good decision to move it. And I also think with this, it was interesting because he was very good on so many levels. And he used to always say, you know, Michelle, you were one of the few clients I have who actually reads the statement of advice, who mm. actually actually reads the fine print. And I would always say to people, read the fine print. I mean, I found I've had issues where we've done refinancing for loans and you read the refinancing that documentation that's come from the banks and there's errors in the documentation. Yep. Um, and so never sign anything that you don't understand get a second opinion and always, always, always read the documents, even if you think it's going to be mind-numbingly boring. Um, and then always keep copies of the documents because that's the other thing as well. I've had situations where there's been, you know, disagreements over things and, you know, and I can pull out the original document and go this and they'll go, oh, wow, well, we actually don't have that. And I go, well, here's a, the record trail. So I think all of that kind of stuff, filing systems, doing your due diligence is really important. Totally agree. And very few people make the time now. You're absolutely right. We've got a finance breaking arm of our business. And the number of mistakes that we find in, in loan contracts and loan documents is staggering, to be perfectly honest. And most people just go, oh, that's a phone book. I'll, where do I sign? So uh, very interesting. And I'd, I'd love to now sort of segue into your favorite topic and one that I've got a, a real interest in in myself and that's around the old leadership exercise and uh, our big bad bosses. So I did sort of kick kick off in that area, Michelle. Uh, what mistakes do you see people making when it comes to leadership and, and being a boss? I think one of the hardest things is a lack of self-awareness. Um, often there's a fabulous researcher called Tasha Ehrlich and she talks about self-awareness from two levels. You need to understand yourself, you know, understand how you're triggered, but you also need to understand the impact that you have on others. And sometimes when people see themselves as self-aware, they go, oh, I really understand myself, but they're not aware of the impact that their behavior is having on the people around them. And, you know, I do come from a philosophy that I think it's very rare that someone wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, my goal today is to be a totally shit boss. You know, it's, it's people don't, you know, unless you kind of in that sort of narcissistic kind of pathology, but what often happens is people are in situations that are stressful. They're out of their depth or there's just an unusual context and environment that isn't bringing out their best and they're reacting to what's going on around them. And that reaction is then having a negative impact on their team. 
Yeah, extremely well said. That that awareness piece. So we like to think we're aware, but uh, we're often so lost in the hustle and bustle that we're really not thinking about exactly how we're coming across or, or thinking about uh, how other people might be perceiving us. And I've, I've often said there's there's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth somewhere in the in the middle. Yeah. And uh, that, that that awareness piece is is something that uh, very few people people focus on um let's sort of jump right into your great book bad boss uh having sped read it now i've really enjoyed uh, uh some of the key messages that have come out of it i'd love for you to share with us you know why did you write it what are the key messages you see it and who's it best suited for michelle I remember I was sitting up in um, on the Gold Coast with my family and I was having a, a chat to my brother-in-law and he goes, I've got the title for your next book. And I said, oh, okay, what is it? He goes, Bastard Bosses. He <laughs> goes, everyone's worked for one. It'll be a bestseller. Um, and it was interesting because my uh, publishers weren't exactly keen on the title. They said, I don't think we can go with that title, but maybe Bad Boss. Um, and when I thought about it, for me, and, you know, this is, comes through in all the books that I've written, there's a personal element to it. And so it was written in three clear parts that if you're working for one, if you are one or if you manage one, and I had been in all three, I've worked for a bad boss, I've been a bad boss and I've managed bad bosses. And the reason I wanted to put it together is it means that you, even if you're in the situation where you're working for a bad boss, I really encourage people to read the other chapters or the other sections because it helps you see the world through their eyes. And the book is not designed to be the, see, you're bad, I'm great. It's it's not that sort of adversarial book or anything like that. It's very much designed so that each person comes to their role with the intent of, I really want to understand what's going on for the other person. How do I help them? What am I contributing to the dynamic? And therefore, what might need to change in me if I want this relationship to be better? And if I can better understand where the other person is coming from, does that then mean that I'm able to adapt how I respond to the situation and therefore end up with better outcomes? So that doesn't excuse and say, you know, let people get away with being a bad boss or anything like that. But it's really helping people go, let's be really clear about the lens that we're using to view the situation. Let's use all of the resources that are around you so you can genuinely try to get the best outcome for all involved. Yeah, there's some great uh, info in the book on the impacts of bad bosses at, at what a level. Uh, are you able to elaborate on some of those for us so that we really understand the the impacts that this is having, not on only on lives and organisations and businesses, but but generally? Look, I mean, it's huge. And, you know, the book was written a, a couple of years ago and some of these stats, they still hold. Um, Gallup Institute, which is a global institute, which is based in the US, you know, they, in one of their latest reports, found that 82% of employees find their leaders uninspiring and only 15% of employees are engaged at work. And we know that if you've got low levels of engagement, you have lower levels of productivity. 
Um, and what we also know is that when you have low engagement, low productivity, that then impacts a whole raft of other factors in terms of client engagement, staff retention. And so if you want to have an environment where you do good work, you have great outcomes for your customers, you need to have good leaders. Um, and, you know, there's often that old adage, people don't leave a job, they leave their boss. And so often we see that. And when you've got an environment at the moment where across the country, we've got a really tight labor market and we've got a high skills shortage, you want to be looking after the people who are in your team, because if you don't, they've got options. Totally. 100% agree. Uh, the um, I've often said that, you know, that a lot of people uh, some people quit and leave, but a lot of people quit and stay. And the the ones who quit and stay are actually worse because they're they're, they're miserable and unhappy themselves. And the 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 sort of uh, ripple effect of that uh, has a negative impact on on the business, on their interaction with their clients and customers. It's just a uh, a bad place to be. But look, uh, Michelle, you've you've uh, sort of run through some uh, really good description of some of the leadership myths of the modern workplace. I'd, I'd love for you to share some of those as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Look, I think there's a couple of key ones. One is that leadership is one size, one shape. To me, leadership is very much contextual. You really do need to understand the environment that you're in. Leadership needs to adapt to the context and also leadership is something that is learned. I don't subscribe to this sort of mythology that you, as a leader, you are born a leader, you are ordained a leader, and that's it. To me, leadership is something that is absolutely a skill that can be learned. And the most important thing through that is that you have to want to learn it. You have to want to become a better leader because you can be put through all the leadership courses in the world. You can be mentored, you can be coached, but if you don't want to do better, if you don't want to be better, it's not going to make any difference. Yeah, 100% agree. Now, you, you give a, a really good breakdown of the four steps to freedom and fulfillment in the book as well. I'd love for you to expand on what they are, if you don't mind. Uh, can I laugh for a minute? Sorry, Bushy, I don't have a copy of the book in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, when I read it, I thought, yeah, there's some some real gold in that exercise. But uh, and given your focus and my focus on freedom and fulfillement, uh, I, I thought it was pretty useful. And, and I, I, I was going to say, I can go and pick up a copy of the book. You might need to edit this bit. <laughs> no, that's all good. No, whether the, the uh, what I will say there is that. Uh, if you're listening, you're going to have to grab a, a book to to get that gold because there's some real gold in that. Uh, but what I'd, I'd love to sort of transition into then, Michelle, uh, given the overall focus on leadership, what, what do you believe are the keys to being successful as a leader and a good boss? Be genuinely interested in your team know them on a personal level. And that doesn't mean you get intrusive and you drive by their house at, you know, odd hours of the night <laughs> or do anything kind of weird stalkerish, but be interested. Who are they? What motivates them? Where do they want to go in their career? Don't be offended if they say, hey, I'm ready to do something else. Because I think often what I see is leaders get upset, particularly if a star performer wants to move somewhere else and then they become persona non grata and you don't want that really treat them with respect understand where they're coming from we look for leaders that inspire us and that help to bring the best out in us and we want leaders who 
make us feel confident and comfortable about where the future is going. And that doesn't mean you don't challenge them. It doesn't mean that you don't um, give them feedback. People want feedback, but they need feedback that's timely. They need feedback that is well delivered. And also they really want to work with leaders that have a sense of direction. You know, where are we going with things and how do I get involved in that? And often where I see leaders falling down is they go, oh, well, people don't need to know that. I'll tell them when they need to know it. And the people around them are going, but I feel like I'm operating in a vacuum. I don't understand how this piece fits with this next piece. So give them context and trust your team. When you build trust with your team, when you give them the right capability, when you give them that confidence that you know that they can do it, you can be surprised as to what people can can, can achieve. So back your team and they'll back you. 100% agree. I know in our own business, we we call it a circle of safety, but we see leadership as, as bottom up, not top down. And if we're creating an environment where the team feel comfortable making mistakes and learning from them and giving them the autonomy to be able to make decisions without having to sort of come back to you all the time, they enjoy their work a lot better. Uh, and their interface with with our clients and whatnot is is a lot stronger as well. So uh, yeah, love your thoughts around that. Now you sort of give us a, a really good framework that we can use in the book when it comes to you know looking at today's working world and a bad boss situation uh, that can help us to advance our relationships. Uh, can you sort of give us a rundown on, on what that framework looks like? Yeah, sure. And the frame sits as a frame across each of those three sections. So the first part is to really assess. Now assess what's going on, what's the impact, what might be the cause. And you really challenge yourself in that part around, you know, is it me? Is it the environment? You know, what am I bringing to the table? What's going on for the other person that's involved? Then the next phase is very much around strategizing because you do need to look at options. The options in terms of how you improve the relationship, the options in terms of what might need to change within you. And then particularly if you're in an environment where it's you working for the bad boss, well, some of those options might be you start to think about, do I need to go somewhere else? You know, is there an exit part in this? Um, if it's you managing a bad boss, part of the strategizing is really what are the, the coaching that you're going to put in place? What are the mechanisms that you're going to establish to actually really help support them to become a better boss? Then the phase three, which is all about the action. So this is where you're putting in place that chosen approach all while you're making sure that you're taking care of your mental health and well-being. And that's really paramount because if you're working in a toxic, challenging environment, it can really take its toll. And then lastly, it's the reflection. And this is where you sit back and go, given where I've been, the issues that I established right at the front when I started working through this, have I made progress? And if you haven't made the progress, does that mean that you need to go back to those strategies? Do you need to adapt? Do you need to do things differently? Or is it that you need to look at exit? And that exit might be for you if you're working for the bad boss or if you're managing a bad boss. Is it that you go, that person's not right for the organization? And for you as the leader, if you're reflecting and going, I'm not changing, there's things here in this environment that aren't working for me, perhaps you need to look at going somewhere else as well. So, I mean, there's other options. It's not just all about exit, but that reflection piece is really critical to go, am I on track? Am I making the progress that I need? Yeah, and then reflection 
is a big missing piece of most of our lives at the moment because we just don't make time time for it. But it's it's ab- absolutely critical. And Michelle, you you also sort of break down uh, four types of bosses uh, in the book, which I think is a really good way to crystallise uh, and start positioning where people fit. Can you sort of give us a, a brief rundown on what that looks like and and what approach is required with each? Sure. So look, it's that kind of classic, you know, management consultant two by two matrix. So <laughs> it's it's very much looking at it from at one end, what's their focus? You know, are they all about themselves? So is it a very selfish focus or are they selfless? You know, they're really concerned about the team and the welfare of their team. And also then what's their level of awareness of their impact? Do they have no idea as to really what's going on and their impact, or are they actually quite conscious of their impact? And the reason it was constructed like that is through my career, I've worked with some people who they were not a good boss, but they weren't a bad person. And they just didn't understand the impact that they were having. And so when you do the the two by two, you end up at that sort of low left-hand corner of what I call the mercenary. And this is a person who they've got absolutely no awareness of their negative impact. They really only care about themselves and they don't care. It's all about them. You know, they're that sort of person who, you know, don't get in the way of my success. Then we have what I call the believer. And this is the sort of person who I was just talking about before they're not a bad bad person. They're just an ineffective yep. leader, you know, and they'll often think that they're doing a really good job because they care about their team, but they're not the sort of person who's going to step into a difficult conversation. They're not going to manage conflict and they're often disorganized and they really just want people to like them. Then we have what I call the illusionist. And to me, the illusionist is often the hardest because they know they're the, the impact that they're having and they know that impact is negative. They just don't care. And they're also a master manipulator and they're typically very, very good at managing up. It's all about making them look good. You can survive that type of environment short term if you make that person look good. Then lastly is what I would classify as the ultimate good boss. This is the liberator. And that doesn't mean that they're perfect every day because I think that's impractical. No one is perfect every day, but they have high self-awareness. They're very realistic about where they're placed. They're very concerned and considered in their approach. They genuinely care and they put their team first. And with each of those, the approach you take does differ. So for example, when you've got a person who's in that believer category where they're nice, but disorganized or whatever else might be that sort of deficiency, you can actually sit down and talk to them or you can find a way to work around them. You know, when I was working for someone like that, I found because they trusted me, I just needed to shift how I worked with them because they were disorganized. I needed to manage some of the workflow that was coming into the team because that actually enabled us to succeed. Now, there were some people who'd say, well, but Michelle, that's not your role. Why were you managing the workflow? Shouldn't shouldn't they have done that? And (laughs) technically they should have, but I was doing that because it made my life easier. Yeah. And so with all of this, for each of those people, really understand what's the person that is in that role, what motivates them, how can you then adapt your style so that you can get out of that role what you need to get out of it? Yeah, brilliantly said and a, a great way to start being able to read what, what sort of a, a leader or a boss that you are actually working with or, or are yourself. Uh, what I'd love to do now, just to whet the appetite 
uh, to encourage listeners to actually go and grab a, a copy of Bad Boss is just get you to sort of in a very abbreviated form, uh, tell us about what we need to do if we work for a bad boss, if we manage a bad boss, or if we are a bad boss. Can you sort of give us a, a dot-pointed summary of some of the, the key aspects there? Yeah, sure. Look, firstly, if you think you've got a bad boss, I think you really do need to actually check yourself. Are you a bad employee? Because is it that the person is challenging you on how you're working? And so you're interpreting that as all about them when in fact you're actually not bringing what you need to the party. So then next, understand what might be driving their behavior. Is that typical or is it out of character? You know, maybe something's changed. They're not coping with what's happening around them because there's been changed circumstances, increased workplace pressure. Because if that's the case, then one of the best things that you can do is go and help them. Sit down, have a conversation and go, wow, I can see that there's a lot going on right now. What do you need from me? And then your boss turns around and goes, oh, wow, this person's awesome. They've actually noticed that I've got increased stress and they're sitting down trying to help me. Yep. Now, if they're in that sort of narcissistic, um, really, you know, illusion, illusionist, bad kind of boss category, then you really do need to go, how long can I survive this role? And what am I getting out of this role? Because sometimes those types of environment, you can survive for the short term and you might be getting new skills. You might be getting exposed to key players. You might be expanding your network, your skill set. And so it might be worth sticking it out, but mm. you do need to really consciously be aware when is this starting to impact how you feel, how you show up and how you treat other people. Because once it's got to that point where it's really starting to negatively impact you, then you need to go, yeah, time's up. I need to go somewhere else. Yeah, good good call. Absolutely. And then the, the last version, if, you, if you're the bad boss, uh, what's your thoughts around that aspect? I think the key thing, and I say this to all leaders, you need objective feedback. It's, you know, it's very easy to live in a little bubble and think that everything's okay. You might be surrounded by sycophants who go, oh, wow, you're awesome. Um, and you need, you need 360. And the best way to do that, it's anonymous. There's a process that sits around it. You get executive coaching that goes with it as well, because that 360 with a really strong tool and a research that sits underneath it then gives you objective data you can look at it and go wow so this is how my team see me this is how my colleagues and my peers see me this is how some of my clients or suppliers because you know you can get different segmented data this is how my boss sees me this is how my boss's boss sees me and yet what i'm seeing when i look at that data is different people experiencing me differently and then the question is why why is it that your direct reports have a different experience to what your boss does? Does that mean you show up differently? And then when you do a 360, you self-rate yourself. And that's illuminating when you can see the gap between how you've rated yourself and how other people have rated you. Yep. Now that's And that gap is sometimes positive and sometimes it's negative. I've frequently have situations with clients where they look and actually their team have rated them more highly than they've rated themselves mm. because these leaders are actually harsher on themselves than the people around them are. But when yep. you've got that data, you can then plan. You can go, okay, I now have a greater awareness as to where my leadership gaps are. I can now build a plan as to how to close those gaps. 
Yeah, I love it. We we use a, a sort of a, a slightly different version of that in our own own business. Uh, we don't make it anonymous because we we created a very open uh, structure right through. Uh, but we do what, and you've um, no doubt heard of this. We do a keep stop start, and we we do it pretty regularly. And and everyone goes around the table with with everyone in the business. We're only a, a very uh, boutique uh, concierge business, so there's only a dozen of us. But it's we want you to keep doing this. We want you to stop doing that, and we want you to start doing this. And the the feedback that comes out of that, uh, it, it really smacks you in the face. So the, the the insights that I've taken away from that process from everyone. Uh, letting me know with no holds barred uh, what happens on the keep stop start uh, it really has been very beneficial is, is that something that you've used or, or or similar tools that that you use with the clients that you're helping with michelle yeah look stop start continue i think is great and i think it's fantastic that you've got an environment where people can be open like that often i find those people can hold back things and so the tools um and, and it, look it depends like i think it's it's always about finding the tool that is fit for purpose because there are some fantastic tools that you can use that give open feedback like that the tool that i use is based on adult development principles and so it's very much about understanding the psychology of our reactive self and how do we really understand how we've been socialized to behave in a certain way. And therefore for us as leaders to go, I understand how my experiences, my background has led me to now behave like this, but I'm now going to make a conscious decision. And it's what we call a self-authored mind, a conscious decision to be a different type of leader and to be that different type of leader, here are the things that I'm going to do. And recognizing that that change takes quite a while, you know, and you would know this yeah. as well through your own development, yeah. it's incremental all the time. And that's why totally. people, you never stop. Um, and context really matters. You know, one of the 360 tools that I use, I used it, you know, so I had it done on me when I was in corporate and I've used it on myself since I've been running the business. And I remember when I had a debrief and the lady who was doing the debrief said to me, oh, wow. She goes, your profile, it's transformational. She goes, <laughs> we don't normally like, wow. And she goes, I don't think I've ever seen such a difference. And I said, context. I said, yeah. when it was first done, I was working highly charged, highly political, big financial services organization. Now I work for myself, very different. And so I often say to people, context really matters. And yeah. so be aware of the environment because it can really change how you show up. And sometimes we don't aware of the, we're not aware of the impact that it's having until later. And it was interesting because my last corporate gig, which was really hard, but in a weird kind of way, I often think I'm so glad I went through that because if I hadn't, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And the people who know me really well will say to me, Michelle, you are now doing what you were born to do. Um, but that that last corporate gig, it was my husband and a very good friend of mine who saw the damage it was doing to me. And yep. Craig said to me, I have never seen you doubt yourself so much. He goes, that place is destroying you. And it was my girlfriend who said, Michelle, you're one of the smartest people I know. She goes, I could just have never figured out why you're not working for yourself. And she was the one who probably unknowingly at that time planted the seed. Yeah, it's interesting. We can be like frogs in a boiling pot uh, with, without uh, recognising what that environment is doing to us until someone else 
who knows us well, uh, pokes us in the ribs and says, hey, but what's going on here? I, I love that. And the, the sort of situational approach that you adopt to uh, look at each and every person in the environment and then adapt a way of leading that's going to be uh, uh, best fit for that particular situation, I think is uh, a, a very clear takeaway for me. Uh, but been awesome to chat around that. I, there, there's another uh, sort of closing question around this subject that I'd love for you to expand on because when it comes to investing our precious time, energy, and money with intent, uh, how can we be clear on the choices we want to make and know how to make good decisions, as you see, Michelle? I'm a planner. Um, and so I am one of those people who I'm really clear about where we want to get to. Every year, and we do this on our wedding anniversary. Craig and I don't work at a wedding anniversary. Um, and over lunch, and I remember in our first year when I brought out the spreadsheet, you can see my husband kind of going, oh, my <laughs> God, we're at this really lovely restaurant and my wife's just pulled out a spreadsheet. What is wrong with her? Um, <laughs> but it's it's life goals on a page. And we have it broken into different categories around financial goals, spiritual well-being, learning and education, society and community and friends and family. So we've got different categories and we have, it's, you know, it's mapped out for the next 10 years and it's quite high level in terms of some of the things that we're doing in the future, but they're thought bubbles. They're things that we've talked about that we know that we want to do and we don't want to lose it, but we get very clear. What are the things that we want to nail next year? And that then goes on my wall in the um, in the office, and it's something that we refer back to, and it helps to keep us on track. You know, are we heading towards where it is that we want to head to? Because we know, and all the research shows this, when you write goals down and when you keep those goals visible, you're more likely to take action on them. Absolutely agree. You're uh... Singing for my song sheet there, Michelle. Let's uh, love what you do there. And, and because you're doing it together, uh, it, it acts as both a magnet and a compass to sort of keep you on on track as to where you're heading, where, you, where you're heading together, which is which is really key. So I love that you're doing that. And I sort of want to shift now into what I affectionately refer to as the ambush round or the, the bushfire lightning round, uh, Michelle. And it's the old podcast fast forward that uh, most podcasts put you through. So I'll get you to tap to answer a couple of questions for me. Um, firstly, what's your favorite quote and why? Oh, it's so hard because I've got so many. And so I'm going to share a quote and it's quite funny because the person who wrote it apparently didn't actually write it, but I still think it's an awesome quote. <laughs> um, so it's supposedly by Viktor Frankl, who was a psychologist, but also a Holocaust survivor. Mm, great it, book. Oh, yeah. Man's Search for Meaning. Brilliant book. I often say to people, very tiny book, but please read it. It's awesome. But it turns out that the quote was a, sort of a summation of a quote that Stephen Covey put in one of his books after reading Viktor Frankl. So with that context, whoever wrote it, thank you, because it's an awesome <laughs> quote. Um, it, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Oh, that's, that's, I hadn't heard that for ages, but it is a great quote in the space that it comes back to that reflection piece again, that uh, very few of us make time to, to do that. And we get to choose what our response is. That's uh, absolute gold there, 
Michelle, uh, you've sort of mentioned Victor Frankel and Stephen Covey already uh, in the literary area. What's what's the top book that you'd recommend that we read and why? Oh, wow, Bushy, you're really testing me. Um, <laughs> yeah, as as a nerd, like <laughs> that's like almost an impossible question to answer. <laughs> yeah, you can give me three if you like. If, you, if one's too hard, give me three. <laughs> Look, it's interesting. I think what I'm going to do is just give you some books that I really, when I read them. They they stuck with me, and yeah. I still go back to them. One is David Rock, Rock's book around your brain at work. It was the first book that I read that I found that was really accessible around understanding how your brain works and therefore how to optimize how you work given how your brain works. Yeah, great. Um, and then the next book would be by Tal Ben Shahar, and it's a book called Happier. And it's all about how do you construct a life where you make the most out of your life? And, you know, that whole sense, you know, people talk about happiness as a feeling, but happiness is actually a habit because yes. it's really about the decisions that you're making and then the things that you're you're doing. And I will also include Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because it's an it's old. It's been around since the beginning of my career and so many books that have been written since reference that book or take elements of that book, but sort of shift it in a certain way. It is timeless. And I often say to some of my coaching clients, if you read nothing else, read that because there's a book that really helps set you up for success. It is awesome. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Great read. I haven't read Happy yet, but that's going straight into my Kindle uh, tonight, thank you, Michelle. Uh, I'm going to really enjoy that one. And, and talking about that, uh, what's a personal happy habit, rewarding ritual or daily discipline that has contributed most to your investment success today? I meditate every morning and I know that sounds really wanky, but I do. Um, and I learned that when I was on the meditation retreat and the meditation really helped center my day. And then I do at the end of the day, I do reflection um, and when I learned to become a facilitator, I still remember in the bathroom, in the place that the course ran, because it ran for a year, there was a sign that said, warning, reflection causes learning. And so I, I do this reflection piece at the end of each day. And part of that is a reflection for what I'm grateful for. But part of it is also me processing what's happened. And I don't judge myself. It's just this tirade of emotions and feelings and thoughts. It's really bad handwriting. And if anyone ever tried to read it, I don't think they could decipher my <laughs> handwriting. Um, and I, Craig does occasionally say, what are you writing about me in that? <laughs> and it's, it, but it's, it's not about that. It's just getting it out of my head because then I often find the next morning when I wake up, I go, ah, oh, that's what I need to do. Yeah, love it. Love it. Great practice. Great practices, all of those. Uh, switching back into the investment flavor for a minute, what's both the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've ever received today? I still think the best advice is the stuff that my dad used to say around save more than you spend. It's 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 that simple. I think the worst advice is people when you see people follow the market. Don't yeah. follow the market. We are irrational, as all of the um, expertise through behavioral economics shows. We are irrational as human beings. Don't worry about where the market is going. Just be really clear that you're investing in solid and good assets and do what works for you. 
Yeah, and that last piece is the most important one. Do what works for you. That's a piece that a lot of people really don't get their head around uh, and then choose a an investment vehicle that suits them and their style. So uh, very wise words of wisdom there. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, Michelle, it's been an awesome uh, chat on leadership and uh, the good old uh, bad boss subject. So if we reflect back on our awesome conversation today, what would be your key takeaways and immediate actions that we need to take? Go and buy the book if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. And, and, buy, and while you're there, why don't you buy the other two as well? Um, sorry, I, I, did, I, did have to, I did have to add that. Of course in. you did. Well done. <laughs> Look, for me with all of this, it really is going, and it's the same, you know, to me you can't divorce your career from your life and often people do. So make decisions about your career that suit the life that you want. Make decisions about your life that fit with your career because when you work with the two hand in hand, then you end up getting to where it is that you want to get to. And so often I see people making decisions where the two seem completely disconnected and that's a hard thing to do. So I would say, sit down, think about where you're up to now. Where is it that you want to get to? What's the role that your career is going to play with that? Are you in an environment that is bringing out the best in you? If it's not, what can you change? Either in that environment or how you're responding to that environment. And, you know, does it mean you can go somewhere else? Because what you really want to do is be able to look back at all of this and go, yeah, I've worked hard. That working hard has paid off. And yeah, there's been times that have been hard because it's always going to be times that have been hard, but I've actually grown through it and I'm really happy where I've landed. Yeah, I love it. That's very sage advice. Uh, so those that uh, like myself who really resonated with your message today, Michelle, how can listeners find out more and get in, in more involved with you? I'm across all of the usual platforms, you know, Insta and Twitter and and LinkedIn, but the best thing is to go to my website. So if you go to michellegibbings.com, you'll find access to the courses that I run, the programs that I run, and also access to all of the books as well. Brilliant. One-stop shop. That's a, a great place to start. Look, it's been a really great chat, Michelle. Uh, really enjoyed you uh, sharing uh, that with us and it's really opening our mind to the opportunities we have to improve our work environment, given how much of our time we spend with that. So uh, thank you again today, Michelle, and look forward to keeping in touch. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Michelle. Talk soon. Excellent. To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. That's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you live forever and live as if you'll die forever.